0: Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy Doviak About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. In this show, we'll talk about current events in the financial world, I'll explain some financial planning topics, and then finally, I answer your questions. In the Ask Peggy segment, if you'd like to participate in this, you need to send a question to the Ask Peggy Facebook page. You send in the question, I might contact you to get some additional information, and then I can answer it on the air. So getting started with the Bulls and Bears market report, the good news for the week ending April 20th, 2018 is the market was boring. We like boring weeks in the market because the volatility recently has been really nausea-inspiring. So at least last week was pretty flat with the Dow ending 0.42% up. The NASDAQ was up a little over half a percent, as was the S&P 500. Gold dropped about three quarters of a percent, again, as a result of a little less volatility, and oil was up 1.16%. Now, I take this data on the value of everything at market close on the day that I tell you. So this was Friday, April 20th. So even though gold and oil trade over the weekend, I actually just take that price at four o'clock. So if you're trying to figure out where the data comes from, that's its source. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back. In today's legislative update, I'd like to begin to explain to you the new rule proposed by the SEC. They're casually calling it the SEC Advice Rule. SEC is the Securities and Exchange Commission, And if you'll think about previous shows, I've said that the SEC said they were going to come out with a draft fiduciary rule. They said that they were going to move forward with this even though the Department of Labor bill was vacated by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So this week, they released a draft. There's a 90-day comment period. So it's really important for you to listen to this and then do some more reading because the actual legislation is hundreds of pages long, and then decide if this is something you'd want to write a letter or possibly take some action on. So the first thing about the new SEC fiduciary rule is it isn't a fiduciary rule. They have not used the fiduciary word, the F-bomb, anywhere in this legislation. What they're saying is that brokers would be held to a best interest standard. And there's many other things that we'll talk about here in a minute, but I want to start breaking that word down for you. Because why does it matter if a consumer says, well, look, my broker is acting in my best interest. What's wrong with that? Because usually when we define fiduciary, we end up using the words best interest somewhere in that definition. The problem is, legally, fiduciary has a meaning. And when someone does not act as your fiduciary, there are established legal standards and actions that you can take. When you water it down and you use a different word, like best interest, you don't have the same legal weight behind the language. And this component of the new SEC rule has a lot of people, including me, pretty upset because they're saying that the clients would have their advisors act in their best interest, which means that they can't put the firm's needs first. Again, sounds a lot like fiduciary, except it doesn't have the word attached to it. And it doesn't create a uniform standard of treatment that consumers receive when they go to a financial professional. An investment advisor, and again, investment advisor is a legal term. It is a way of being registered with your regulatory body. Investment advisors have always had a mandatory fiduciary rule. On the brokerage community, it's been a suitability rule. Now, granted, I like best interest better than suitability, but I don't like the fact that there's no legal teeth behind it. So that's really the first problem. And then there's some other issues. One of the things that the rule proposes doing is creating a title reform, Who can call themselves an advisor? So if you are just a broker, the new rule is suggesting that you cannot use the term advisor, spelled either A-D-V-I-S-E-R or A-D-V-I-S-O-R, when you're working with a client. So that they'll have to call themselves something as an advisor other than an advisor. The argument is they're not actually giving advice. They're acting as a broker or a transaction maker. There's nothing wrong with a transaction. The problem has come in when people were working with someone who's paid by conducting transactions and they thought they were getting advice. So the SEC said, okay, fine. Brokers can't use the word advisor. There are a lot of issues with this though. First of all, they said that the restriction doesn't apply if someone's acting on behalf of a bank or an insurance company. So you could have a broker at a bank, and there's a lot of banks that employ brokers. They don't employ investment advisors. But because that broker works for a bank or an insurance company, they're allowed to use the word advisor. Other kinds of words, like financial consultant, is not regulated at all. So, again, how do we deal with this? We deal with this by the consumer knowing what questions to ask. And if it's not confusing enough already, if you have both an investment advisory firm side to your business and a brokerage firm side to your business, you're allowed to use the word advisor when you're acting on the investment advisory side. Let's break that down into English because it's really pretty outrageous. You have someone who's registered as an investment advisor, and under that rule, they have to act as a fiduciary. The same person can also have a brokerage agreement with a company. So that sometimes they're a broker and sometimes they're an advisor. And the dual registration, they casually call it switching the hat. So that first you're an advisor, then you're a broker. There's millions of problems with this. The biggest one is there's not a consumer anywhere who understands when their investment advisor has taken off the IA hat and they put on their broker hat. Allowing them to use the word advisor in addition to this is just going to um, confuse the matter. So we don't have a fiduciary standard. We do have a limitation on the word advisor, but with some really big carve outs and the ability to still call yourself a wealth manager or a financial consultant or any of the other terms that are commonly used in the industry that don't actually specifically say you're giving advice, but lead the client to believe that you are. So those are the really big pieces of this, but there's a couple of other things that I want you to know. One of the biggest sets of teeth that the Department of Labor fiduciary rule had was the ability for consumers to sue to enter a class action lawsuit and sue their financial professional. Now, in truth, this doesn't happen very often. Most of the time, people are just annoyed because the market went down. Well, no one, I don't care if you're a fiduciary, I don't care how you're registered. If you haven't done something really egregious, there isn't anything any of us can do about the fact the market goes down. So financial advisors, investment advisors, haven't been sued very often. But it was nice to put the mechanism in place so that if someone was acting really badly, you could sue. Most um, financial contracts that you sign actually limit you to arbitration. So DOL said, no, that's not right. We're going to give people the right to sue in this space like they have the right to sue everywhere else. Well, the SEC said they are not going to put anything like that in place. So they specifically mentioned it and eliminated it from their new proposed regulation. So, you know, if you can't get them to do something right out of the goodness of their heart, you can get them to do something right by scaring them. That does not exist anymore under this new proposed legislation. Remember, there's a 90-day comment period right now. This can't just directly go into law. But um, really, consumers are going to have to get very vocal very quickly and get through the hundreds. It's a 916-page document. It's not really designed for light reading. But consumers are going to have to get really plugged into it really quickly if they're going to make enough noise about this to change out parts of it. Additionally, there's going to be a summary disclosure that they said can't be longer than four pages that you have to sign when you enter an agreement, and that disclosure talks about compensation and conflicts of interest and how the advisor is paid and covers everything, or the broker. So that that um, disclosure is on the brokerage side, it's on the advisory side, I talked to you in an earlier episode about the importance of reading contracts before you sign them. That's never been more important. It's really important before you engage a financial professional, if this law goes in place as written, that you read that four page disclosure and you ask lots of questions. Because whoever you're working with, the financial professional should not mind answering them, but it's going to be up to the consumer to do their due diligence and make sure who they're working with, make sure they understand the conflicts of interest, how that advisor or financial professional is being paid, and then make their own decision about what they want to do. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy Doviak About Your Finances show. I'm Peggy Doviak, and in this part of the show called Plan Your Prosperity, today we're going to talk about annuities. And I bet you're expecting me to just immediately start slamming annuities and saying how much I hate them because I'm pretty vocal on some of the legislative stuff. But I want you to understand what an annuity is And I want you to understand what you're actually doing when you're creating an annuity. And then we'll get into specific kinds of products and talk about what's good about them, what you might want to be careful of, and just really be sure you understand what you're buying before you make the decision. And I want to start out by defining the word annuity. In its most basic form, the word annuity means you take a lump sum of money, and then you convert it to an income stream that makes a monthly payment to the person for every month for the rest of their life. So you start with money that maybe that person has access to as a lump sum, or maybe they don't, but then it creates a stream of income. So the simplest annuity that everyone pretty much over the age of 65 has is Social Security. You pay into Social Security every month. You know, every time you have a job, you have to pay into Social Security. And so you've accumulated a lump sum of money. And then when you're 62 or full retirement age or 70, whichever one you choose, you annuitize it and you get a monthly check for the rest of your life. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. The old school pension plans are actually annuities where the employer put money back on your behalf, you put money back on your behalf, you didn't have to make any investment decisions, and then once you retired, you got a monthly check for the rest of your life. That's an annuity. So, I really want you to know what they are. Now, very rapidly, the story starts getting complicated. Where it really can become problematic for people is when they're looking at purchasing an annuity. So, if you're purchasing an annuity, you're going to start out with two basic, big categories. You have fixed annuities, and you have variable annuities. A fixed annuity gives you a rate of return that is guaranteed for the life of the annuity, and then every month you get a check. So the advantage that a fixed annuity gives you is you're not worried about market volatility. The disadvantage that a fixed annuity gives you is that you don't participate in market growth. Now, sometimes that's okay because taking as much risk as you can possibly stand isn't necessarily the right thing for you to do. But on a fixed annuity, you want to be really careful that you know what rate of return you're locking yourself into. Now, this is different than a fixed indexed annuity, which ties to the market but has a guaranteed minimum. We'll get to that in just a minute. I'm talking about just a plain old, pretty boring document that says, okay, we're going to take this lump sum of money, and it's going to grow at X percent every year for the rest of your life, and this is how much money you can get back when we do that. Right now, interest rates are so low that something you need to be careful of anytime you're looking at anything that's fixed is how will it hold up against inflation in the long run. Remember that the long-term inflation rate has been 3%. If you lock into anything fixed and it's paying 2.5%, if interest rates go back up, I mean, rather, if inflation goes back up, you could be earning a rate of return that doesn't keep up with inflation because you've got a rate of return of 2.5 when inflation is running 3. So you need to be careful about that. You don't want to have a degradation in the value of your money simply because you're not keeping up. I'm not saying I don't like fixed annuities. I like a lot of things about them, but you need to understand that potential weakness. Of course, on the variable annuity, the problem is it's tied to the stock market, and you can have huge swings. Now, once it's annuitized, you no longer participate in that market growth. So generally what you're doing is you're investing the money into an annuity, and then once you actually get to the point you want the stream of income, there's some changes that go on. The problem with the variable annuity is that potential of a market correction at exactly the wrong point, you're very heavily in equities, and you have a disaster. But the truth is that's a problem anytime you're in the stock market. So that almost leads directly into the other major classifications of annuities. There's an immediate annuity, and there's a deferred annuity. In an immediate annuity, you immediately start getting the monthly check. So you give them a lump sum, here's your immediate annuity, and you get paid every month going out. In a deferred annuity, you put the money in, maybe you make monthly payments, maybe it's not a lump sum, and then over time, the portfolio does whatever it does, and then eventually you get a stream of income. Now, On top of this, especially on the variable annuity side, we begin layering on complications almost immediately. Sometimes there will be a guarantee that if you don't take money out, you know that you can annuitize at least the amount of money you put in. Sometimes there will be a fixed indexed annuity where they guarantee that you can have your money in the market, but it will never lose money, you're guaranteed a growth rate, and then eventually you annuitize it. All of these things can get super complicated, all of these things can get expensive, and you need to understand what's really going on. I'm not going to say which one you should buy and I'm not going to come down really harshly against any of them, but I will say that every time they make you a guarantee, there is typically a fee associated with that. And one of the biggest complaints about annuities is they can be really, really expensive. When especially the complicated ones where you have a lot of different moving parts and pieces and you need to really know what you own, you need to know where the risk is, when the risk stops, if there's a guarantee about the lump sum of money that will be annuitized, how much you're paying for that guarantee, and then I'm a really big fan of knowing how much someone's made to sell you something. Now, there are a few fee-only annuities out there. Most annuities are sold via commission, And as part of that commission structure, they wind up having something called a surrender period. On a surrender period, you cannot take your money out of the annuity or transfer it even to another annuity without paying a major penalty, losing quite a bit of money, usually as a percentage, usually over a period of time, and it gradually decreases the reason they put the surrender periods in there is the money that the annuity company has paid to the person who sold you the annuity up front. And so they basically hedge their bet that if you pull the money out, they still have enough to cover the commission that they paid along with other expenses. So in closing, you need to know what kind of annuity it is. Is it fixed or variable? Is it immediate or deferred? What are the fees? What are the monthly charges? What are the annual charges? How long is the surrender period? And then I'd find out how much money the annuity salesman got from the annuity company for selling you the annuity. That's hard information to get. You'll likely have some difficulties, but it might be worth digging into just a little bit. Then you decide whether or not this makes sense for you. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment. The first question that I have comes from Jackson. And Jackson asked, if I'm just beginning to invest, should I choose mutual funds or stocks? Because there's a stock I would really like to buy. And I hear this question all the time, and it's always followed with, wow, I have something and I really want to buy it because I really like the company, either because I think it has good earnings potential, or I think it's really cool, or I always shop there, or I always eat there. So here's what I would recommend. First of all, remember that there is the goals of investing, which are typically long-term goals. So if you're just getting started investing, the first thing you're looking at is why are you investing? What's the goal? What are you trying to accomplish? For most people, that answer is retirement. Now, it might not be in your case. It might be college funding or something like that. But typically, it's a pretty long-term goal. And that's the easiest way to invest, because if we invest over time, we're not trying to time the market, we're not trying to make crazy decisions, we're not trying to double our money every year, and just the whole situation goes much better, and you're much more likely to reach your financial goals. So the mutual fund is a really good, boring answer. But I'm not going to stop there because when you are getting started, you need the diversification. You need to put something in place when you don't have a lot of money that can pretty much handle an entire risk tolerance. And some of those blended funds, you know, ETFs or mutual funds can be a great solution for that. But I also know how much fun it is to track a stock. So I want you to go back into your cash flow, and I want you to look at your discretionary spending. This would be the money that you might go to the store and buy something with. You might go out to dinner with, or just, it's that money you just kind of blow through. I'm talking about your spending money. If you really want to buy a stock, buy a few shares out of your spending money. If you want to wait and save up that spending money for six months or a year and then buy a little bit more, you know what, that's great savings discipline, because I understand people want to track stocks. It's really much more fun, and if it's something you like, I understand it. It's a great way to begin to learn about the market because as you track your stock, you learn a lot of vocabulary. But don't do it as your investment strategy. Just go ahead and do it out of the spending money. This is speculative. It isn't your retirement money, but if you want to buy stock rather than go out to eat, I don't see a problem with that. Consult your financial advisor and see if they agree. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. The next question comes from Crystal. And Crystal says, I just started working and my employer told me that I don't actually need to enroll in the retirement plan because the firm uses a negative election and I don't know what that means. So sometimes companies really want their employees to participate in the retirement plan. A negative election means that you are enrolled in the plan unless you choose not to be. And then they'll typically set a dollar amount, like 3% of your salary. And they will take that out of your salary as a contribution each month. And there's a default investment. So it's actually theoretically possible to not even know you're in a retirement plan until you get a statement. Negative election is a good way of getting people to save for retirement. It's also a good way for companies to make sure they have enough employee participation. It is important to know what's going on with your money. So you ought to see whether or not you're in the plan. You need to understand what that default investment is. Look at it specifically. Look at its risk tolerance level. Look at its assumptions. Make sure that default investment is actually where you want your money to be. The default investment used to be money market, but they discovered that a lot of people don't go in and make portfolio changes. So now it's more likely to be a balanced fund or a target date fund that becomes more conservative the closer you get to your target retirement date. But I really wish you would understand it. Don't just let them take care of it for you. Look at what you own. Make sure it ties to what you need. If you don't have a negative election, then make sure that you've enrolled in your plan, especially if it has a match. Because if your retirement plan has a free match and there's any way at all that you can contribute enough money to the plan to get the full match, then that's free money. And the free money is a really good way to help you save your retirement because we're in retirement now, almost as long as we're in our working careers where we're saving for retirement and that 50-50 split is really scary so it's important that you have enough money saved so that when you retire your retirement is easy well i can't believe that the show's already over again i say that every week but it's amazing how fast 30 minutes goes Remember that the 90-day comment period for the new SEC Best Interest Rule has already started. So if you're wanting to make a comment on this, you need to go ahead and do it while you still have time. Possibly with enough consumer interaction, there'll be some modifications. Even if there isn't, you'll know you did what you could. If you've got a question, send it to Ask Peggy, and I will see you next week. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at Peggydoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.